0: I'm so excited to have a longtime friend and colleague, Lydia Bryset from Coloring Colorado on the podcast. You know of Coloring Colorado's resources and articles, and now we get to hear from them directly. Lydia, bienvenido our podcast. Thank you so much,
1: Tan. I'm so excited to be here and really honored because I am a huge fan of this podcast. I'm a huge fan of your blog. I am always so impressed with all the questions and the way you're able to all these these big thoughts into great takeaways for people so i really appreciate you having me here thank you
0: well i really appreciate all of colorado has given to the field i know that when before i started this podcast and blog i i knew it as one of the most trusted resources it was larry Falazzo's and colorado and every time i saw one of larry's or yours posts i would always stop to read it cuz i'm like okay it's speaking teacher speak like like practitioner teachers speak and not academic speak, but like really great uh, scholars um, that have written articles for you. I'm like, yes, and so you always make it practical. Actually, let's start there. What is Color in Colorado and what were its origins? Thank you, I'm, I'm glad you, that was a great intro to the project because I think that
1: kind of highlights a little bit about the origin story as well. But um, we're the nation's leading site serving English learners, multilingual learners, we reach more than three million unique visitors a year, and we are actually a public media project based in Washington D.C. at PBS station WETA, which is a part of our uh, a home that not all of our audience is as aware of. Um, and we're part of a phenomenal department within WIDA called the Learning Media Department. And some of our sister projects are ones that your audience may be familiar with, such as Reading Rockets, focusing on early literacy, Applet.org, focusing on um, uh, adolescent literacy and older students. Um, we have LD online focused on learning disabilities, a start with a book, which is also um, a Reading Rockets project focused on building background knowledge, themed book list, themed activities. We're actually going to be launching a new project later this year, focused on comprehensive information about teaching, reading, and writing. And we also have another site um, about traumatic brain injury and um, that is called brainline.org. So we're a very small team, but we have these great national projects that have really loyal, engaged audiences around specific issues that are really hard to get your arms around and where they need, you, you know, where there is a lot of research, but that doesn't necessarily get into the hands of the people who are doing the work. And so we've always tried to be a, a way to bridge research and practice, I think. And then of course we do that in Colorado with owls. So, that is, that is the mission, that's how this all started, to bring the research to the field, but in a way that's very practical, easy to access, easy to use, and then easy to share as well, which is a big part of it, and that's how sort of a lot of it has been word of mouth, and I often hear people say, oh, I just came from a session, and people said we have to check out Color Colorado, and so um, that kind of gives a, a nutshell of the big picture, and in terms of how it began, um, LD Online and Reading Rockets were the first websites in our project, but um, they started getting requests for information about English learners and what do you have in other languages and do you have anything in Spanish. At the same time, the American Federation of Teachers, Teachers Union, was getting questions from their members. What do you have about English learners? And so that all came together. um, And I I want to especially mention Giselle Lundy-Ponce at AFT because she was really... Um, instrumental in putting that all together and then saying, let's start a conversation with WIDA to see if we could pull this together in a way that that would really serve the field because there was not anything like this. And this is 2004. And so this was, you know, there was a lot developing in the L field. There was a lot developing. Um, and I don't know if you've seen those maps that used to be published by Insela where they would show the percentage growth in some of the states. Of how the population was changing. But there were states that were having 1, 2, 300% increases, up to 6, 7, 800% increases in their outpopulation at that time. And Giselle had the great idea to bring a group of practitioners. You said this feels like it's practitioners talking to practitioners. That's because there was our AFT ELL cadre. And most of the people um, who were originally on the cadre have retired or have moved into other roles. One of them, Susan LaFond, is still there, and I actually found her resume recently when we were cleaning our offices out for um, some renovations that are being done at the building. And so it's really um, well-informed by that voice, and that, I think, is what has made the difference, um, with Giselle bringing the cadre together. And then later on, we started partnering with the National Education Association. And so that brought us to a new group of educators, a new group of staff members, and that's great because there are L's everywhere, and you know across the country, and um, you know whether it's rural, suburban, urban, um, you know there's just so much diversity in the population, and so much diversity in the level of preparation that schools have to teach this population. And so I think we are often kind of a front line. Uh, I don't want to say first line of defense, but we are very much a resource that people go to when they don't know where else to go. And so I think that has been a part that has shaped the projects as it has grown over these nearly two decades that we've been doing this.
0: I didn't really, I didn't know that Colorado was birthed from Reading Rockets. I was like, that is amazing. And I see the connection there. How do you spend your days at Reading at, at Colorado?
1: Um, my role as the director of the project is, um, many different hats. Uh, I am, I worked on the partnerships with AFT and NEA. I, um, am in charge of developing the content. And so I think there are two, two examples that are really, um, in the kind of bring that to life and they both have to do with current events. When we knew that we were going to be, uh, having a lot of, um, Afghan families, uh, coming from Afghanistan. We um, started looking around for resources and I came across an article from the Austin Independent School District in Texas. And um, they actually had held a press conference to talk about what they were doing to prepare for the Afghan families that would be coming because they had a very big Afghan community already. So they had a lot of language support. They had a lot of cultural support. A lot of the teachers had, been, had some training and sort of cultural norms. And so they were really trying to prepare and thought maybe other districts could learn an example. And as it turned out, they had never held a pre- press conference like that. They had no idea how it was going to go. But then this article got out and then they started getting all these calls and we called them. And so I think it's a great reminder to share the work you do because other people really can learn from it. But I reached out to them and en- ended up interviewing the director of refugee services for the district, the director of multilingual education and an Afghan interpreter. And we didn't um, and parent liaison and we didn't publish her name for safety reasons but um, they were able to give me a sense of you know how they were preparing what they knew about the community what teachers needed to know about maybe some cultural norms that they could expect to see um, and I then wrote an article based on the um, based on those interviews but I think it's a good example of sort of trying to go to where the story is a little bit and then what who are people that we can learn from? So let me put myself in the position of a teacher who's not taught any Afghan students, but I may have some families coming and I don't really know where, who can I learn from? Well, this is a team I can learn from because they have been already doing this work. Um, After, so then fast forward to a different situation in a different part of the globe. After Russia invaded Ukraine, we sort of were thinking again, along the same lines, if, eventually Ukrainian families are coming here um, more regularly or, or there's a big group coming in a short time. How can we help schools prepare for that? We first did a resource page and it talked about, um, you know, what are some considerations for all students who were impacted by this. So after a few months, um, we kind of regrouped and I spoke. Um, uh, Dr. Ruslena Westerland had been so kind to review the first page for me and give me some feedback and tell me which resources were worth keeping and which ones were not worth keeping. And then um, I said, you know, what can we do that really kind of highlights the experience of the children and the families who are coming? So she pulled together a phenomenal group of um, Ukrainian educators who were working and teaching in this country. And we, they, you know, I put a Google Doc together, I put my questions in and they all filled it out. And so we had questions that were very much the immediate. What is, you know, what are families going through What are you seeing when they come? What can we learn? But then they really um, had so much to say because many of them had, they had come to this country, some very recently, some had been there for a long time, but they all had that experience of coming here and knowing what was hard for them, what was challenging. And then having supported other families, they started realizing, oh, this is something that, this, this is a lot of Ukrainian families have this question. So it's a really nice case study of what it looks like for um, a a cultural um, adjustment and, you know, what's different about the language, what's different about the schools, what's different about sort of the the expectations around XYZ. And so um, it turned into, I think, just a really great um, showcase that sort of highlights the urgency of the moment, but then also sort of gives this broader context. And so those were resources that when I started, I didn't know what they were going to look like. I didn't know who was going to help put them together. I just knew they were needed. And so then it was sort of a puzzle of saying, okay, how do we get there? And what do we do? So if if you're sort of coming back to the question, you had said, oh, how do I spend my day? You know, it's reading that article. It's reaching out to somebody on the phone. It's sending the email saying, hey, what are your ideas here? It's being introduced to the other teachers who can contribute. Um, and then kind of going through there and say, okay, well, how do we put this together and make sure that it can be useful, it's sensitive, it's accurate. And I'm sure we are not, we don't get it all right all the time, but we certainly try to have a lot of people involved who can um, help steer us in the right direction. You know, we're not working in a school, we're not in classrooms every day. So it really helps to have the teachers and the families as well. Um, and so it's just kind of jumping around between all those things and no two days have ever been the same. I certainly can say that without hesitation.
0: I'm sure you often get this question of like, oh, Colorado, that's in like Colorado, right? So would you tell us about the name?
1: Sure. It's it's a great question because we do. And we, I remember one time seeing that uh, Denver Happy Hour had uh, tagged us on Twitter and <laughs> we, um, we we do understandably a lot of people do think we're in Colorado and as I mentioned we're in Washington D.C. but coloring Colorado is a phrase that's used in storytelling so this is something new for people who don't speak Spanish for people who speak Spanish it's a little bit more of a familiar reference um, but it's it it's there's a, a phrase when you get to the end of the story coloring Colorado is the cuento se ha acabado el cuento se ha terminado and um, it's so it's a it, it doesn't translate to happily ever after, but it's kind of that same idea of a refrain that you hear again and again at the end of the story. And we actually have a quote on the site where someone says, when I hear this, this just reminds me of the stories I heard in my childhood and brings me so many good memories. So there is a population for whom it's a very meaningful reference. It's sort of a learning curve for a lot of other folks, but um, it's a beautiful reference, I think, to that that cultural connection and that the power of the storytelling and, and reading
0: Let's move to talking about some of your articles um, on your website. Um, let's talk about building relationships with ELs and then another one about language objectives. Sure,
1: well, the, the building relationships with ELs, I think if there is one thing that I have heard more than anything, if you were to say, what is the one piece of advice you've heard more often from veteran teachers of ELs, it would be build relationships with your students. And um, there's so many layers to that. And I was thinking it's almost, you could almost do tier one, tier two, tier three, like RTI of this. And the article is not structured this way, but you have sort of that first level that everybody can do, be kind, be welcoming, smile, positive body language, learn how to pronounce people's names. And we have a quote from a a teacher that someone put on Twitter, where he said, a, a student came up to me and said, you know, you're my favorite teacher. And he said, Thank you so much but I'm not your teacher and he said but you're you're the one who smiles to us and you're so kind in the hallway and so you think well what a great job he's doing making that student feel welcome but what's going on in his other classes that he doesn't feel like those he's getting that from those teachers right so there's kind of that level and then there's the next level tier two getting the uh, getting getting to know kids getting to know their strengths their talents um getting to know their interests a little bit more about their background And then there's the tier three of really getting to know their background, education. uh, Where are they with their literacy? Are there other social emotional issues that need to be addressed? And so that you're not doing all of these at once, but everybody can start out at tier one and it really makes a difference. And what this looks like is different everywhere because you also have cultural considerations coming in and you have all these different pieces of it, but it is so central. And the teachers we talk to who... Who feel that this is so important say whatever time you invest, you're going to get that back later on because you're going to have a better rapport with the students and the families as well, and you're just going to know them better. You're going to be able to improve engagement, and this um, really matters. And at an even more basic level, Dr. Ayanna Cooper has a few different inter, um, video clips on her site where she talks about assumptions that people make about students. So, for example, she has two separate stories in which Haitian Students are mistakenly thought to be African American US born students. And what are the implications of that? In one case, an administrator calls a student out and says, or calls two students out and tells them they're in the wrong class. And finally, the students say, This is our class. We're ESL students, and they have to be the one to tell the administrator that they're in the right place. In another case, it's a young woman who has come from Haiti after the earthquake, and she is um she is having a really hard time in U.S. history because everyone thinks she has this background knowledge because she's been in U.S. schools as an African-American student all the way up through high school. And she has not been. She has just arrived here. So she has some information. She's not starting from scratch, but she is not. And people keep saying, you should have seen, you should have had this already. You should have had this already. At the most basic level, who are your students? Where are they from? What languages do they speak? And so it's, um, it really can be very powerful and make a huge difference. So that's um, something that we really try to make sure is easy to share. We have great big examples. We have great videos, bring it to life. And we also have some really nice examples of how you can do this in virtual spaces as well that we developed in the pandemic. Um, The second article you asked about, uh, Language Objectives. It's actually our most popular article for educators on the site. It has been viewed more than 1.2 million times since it was posted, written, written by Jennifer Himmel. I saw her present this information at a conference and went up to her and said, Jen, would you be willing to write this article? She said, sure, we've worked on it. It's in-depth. It's got a lot of substance, and we never knew it would be this breakaway success that it is. But I think it just shows that people want substance. They want information. They want really good um, guidance on something that is pretty um, you know, sophisticated as,
0: as a topic around developing language objectives alongside content objectives. Before I go talk a little bit more about the language objective part, though, you're right, the relationship part is like there are things that we could teach you, strategies that we can share with, that we can learn as colleagues on how to teach instruction, language instruction, or English ac- academic language instruction. But developing relationship is like really hard to teach. Yet it's the most important part. If kids trust you, they're going to risk um, saying some things in a new language. They're going to risk following instructions in a new language. They're going to try something different. Without that trust, we go nowhere. Would you return back to the language objective and talk a little bit more about what did um, Jeff Jennifer Hemo say about that, about language objectives?
1: The first is to help people understand what language objectives are. And I think that's a really hard thing to pull out and to be successful in meeting the content objective. So are we needing to talk about it? Are we needing to write about it? Are we needing to understand specific vocabulary? Are we needing to do something with the text or with the information, like comparing contrasting, that is different than the information we are learning in the content objective. So the first is to sort of explain that distinguish. She provides a lot of examples and then she walks through how do you get there and what are the steps you take and what are the, the pieces of that process that'll get you there at the end. And she's providing good examples along the way. So she's providing standards. So you're starting with what is our you know, our objective is coming from this particular content standard, for example. And then what would it look like at different levels at different ages to go through and actually walk through that whole process, which is why it's a little bit more in depth because she really just kind of breaks it down in each piece. And actually um, we have a new project Coming up, which is going to focus on teacher evaluation and observ- observation of, of teachers of English learners. What was interesting to me was at the very end of the whole process, the teacher is meeting with his evaluator, and she says, "Do you have any other questions for me?" And they have had, you know, a lot of conversations that we have on camera around this whole process, and he says. I'm kind of having a hard time with language, the language objectives. Could you help me out with that? And she says, sure, here's, here are the resources I pull. So even someone who is really experienced in this area, in this population, you know, he's still trying to get his head around it. And I just think that's indicative of this is just, it's a hard thing to do. But it does, it does uh, illuminate the... Um, the process and the language, and it really makes language the focus where a lot of teachers have not had that practice. And that's something that English learner specialists are trained to do. And other teachers don't have that, often don't have that experience of learning how to tease that out. So that's, um, that's the article in a nutshell. And that's what she had presented on um, at this conference. When I, and I thought it would be so helpful to see it laid out.
0: Dr. Brené Brown said that uh, clear as kind. And I think when we write language objectives, they provide that clarity to a lesson, to that focus to say, okay, today we're going to be learning how to analyze our our data from our lab experiment. So everything we're going to do today is about analyzing. Let's move on to, instead of articles, let's move to talking about SEL.
1: This is something we've been focused on for a long, long time because it has always been apparent in terms of the work that we do on this site, that it's all all in the mix and it's all impacting the classroom and it's impacting students and it's impacting teachers. And there are a lot of different ways we've come at it over time, which has included relationships with families and getting to know your students, what responsibilities do they have at home, what are some of the concerns they may have, what are some of the experiences They have, what are the traumas that they've had? That there are a lot of different pieces. Um, A student who maybe is referred for special education and it turns out that she's never had an eye exam and she just needs glasses. Um, A student who is really uncomfortable because he hasn't had um, dental uh, appointment. And so it also brings in immigration status and what kinds of health and mental health resources families have access to, as well as just the general feeling in the classroom and how does that all work together? And I think we perhaps have been doing that for a long time because the ELL community is at the intersection of all of those issues for their students. They are often the connection to the family, the connection to whatever social services might be in play, whatever support the students needs in the school, um, how is this impacting you know, their students? And so ELL uh, educators, I think, have a really unique perspective and often role and even what turns into a responsibility that is not their job to carry alone, but sometimes they are the person who is doing most of that work. So I think it's something we've, we've, that it's been on our radar uh, for a long, long time. So there are two projects that really bring this to light. One is in Dearborn, Michigan. This was an AFT project. And uh, we've featured uh, two schools that are right across the street from each other, a middle school and an elementary school. They serve a big community of families, most of whom are from Yemen, not everybody. But of course, this is a country that's been going through a very difficult civil war. And so a lot of the kids have trauma. They have family separation. There's a, sort of an unusual pattern where often um, part of the family comes and then other family members come. Later, sometimes it's the mother who stays and the the child comes to join a father or an uncle. Um, So, there are a lot of kids who aren't with their mothers, Um, and um, the level of education they've had access to as the war has gone on has, you know, dwindled over time. Um, But this school has so many rich supports and is such a beautiful, vibrant community, and they've come up with all these different ways to support the families to engage with the parents, um, their gender roles to take into account. And what does that look like? They're very culturally responsive. Um, They've got a lot of bilingual staff. You feel this warmth, you feel there's artwork everywhere um, and it just feels calm. And they talk about, you know, these kids need a stable, calm environment. They need a place where they can be afraid, as you said, to take risks, but it's gonna take a while for them to get there. And they just, as the principal said, they just need to be, for a while. They just need to be here and we just need to be ready to meet them where they are. So we were so fortunate to do this film, which won an award. It won a Michigan Emmy. It's about 20 minutes long and we have it on our website. And, um, and then we were so fortunate to be able to go back and show, show it. And we had um, uh, subtitles in Arabic and uh, our director, Christian Lindstrom was heroic in getting that done so that it was ready for the screening. And we went back to the community and people said, you know, you always come back to Dearborn, you always come back to Salina. And there we were, we were back at the same school showing the film. And by then one of the mothers of the students we had interviewed had come and she, we had interviewed the daughter about how, about that, that separation. And then the mother was there, we couldn't her. So that was amazing. Um, then we stayed in touch with the school during COVID. And so we learned about, about their family engagement, and their hands-on learning, their STEAM, their wonderful school garden, um, their family uh, outreach during the pandemic, and then their more formal SEL training. So they were already doing this and they still wanted their staff to get SEL training when they came back to in-person learning because they they could see at um, times like recess when it was really unstructured, kids were having a hard time. And so even with all this background, they said, we still need more. And it made a difference, it really made a difference. So we've stayed in touch. It's a really fruitful relationship. I will say this is a district that has a lot of district-wide support for English learners, for the training of teachers working with English learners, um, including whether or not they are ESL certified. And they're also sort of those certifications and credentials are structured into what different roles need to have certifications um, and which roles need to be bilingual because they have so many Arabic speaking students in the district as well as other languages. Um, There's a, 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 they do something called a new teacher academy uh, where people get training on a variety of topics, including English learners. They have a lot of culturally responsive training. And it's worth mentioning that the superintendent, Dr. Gwen Maleko, was actually a teacher at this school that we had filmed at in the nineties. And he taught Iraqi refugees who were coming from the Gulf War. And so he knew what it felt like to see a really disturbing drawing and not know what the child had been through and just to not know what to do with that. Like, where do I even begin? So he sort of knew that lost feeling that I think a lot of teachers have. And so it's really an area of strength of the district. And there's also a phenomenal team at the ELL department um, administrative level. So when you have everybody on the same page, as a leadership priority for the principals and the superintendent. I mean, there's just so much you can do and there's so much that's needed. Um, So that's a great example. And they also work very closely with their teachers union and that has been factored into some of the more structural supports and expectations. Um, So that is one example. The other project we did was in Brockton, Massachusetts. And this was a district that had really excellent multilingual supports before the pandemic. They had multilingual nurses. They had multilingual community support, facilitators, profession, paraprofessionals. They had at least three or four different roles that interface with families regularly. Um, not coincidentally, their superintendent also taught English learners as a teacher. Their union leader taught English learners. She in fact remembers Befriending an English learner as a child in Brockton, and many years later saw the woman who said what, how much that meant to her. So again, you're bringing this in, and they have a great director of bilingual education and multilingual services named Kelly Jones, who got me in touch with more than 30 people in the district, because we really wanted to highlight all the different roles, what was happening, especially with their COVID response. And what's so interesting, like with the nurses, they were contact tracing. Eventually they were doing, administering the COVID vaccines and not just for the students and families, they were actually doing it for the city. And so the nurses became part of the citywide response and support team because everybody was able to work it out. And of course, in that case, having that union partnership really helped because they could work out the staffing and contracts, but they had mental health support and they had food deliveries to homes. There was a, a story, a woman shared with us of a woman who was given a, like a SNAP, food benefits card, and couldn't access the benefits and didn't know why. Finally, they figured out that because um, uh, in in this woman's country, you write the date differently, she was putting the date first and then the month, and it wasn't going through the system. And when the paraprofessional said, you know, tell me again how you're putting the number, because she remembered that the child had the same birthday, that had a birthday in the same month that she did. She said, tell me how you're putting the date in. So you know, that relationship, you talk about building relationships, that relationship gave that family then access to this food, right? So it's 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 just really interesting to visit places where it's happening on a system-wide level because it's different. And they, they can't imagine doing it any other way. They are always kind of like, we're so happy to share our story, but we just don't understand why you wouldn't do it this way. And I think, you know, so those are examples we'd love to lift up because they're so um, important and valuable.
0: After this podcast is over, I'm gonna, I gonna—I know what I'm going to do first. I'm going to look for that award-winning documentary. Like, what education documentary wins an award? Like, that is worth watching, right? And I think both of those stories tell, uh, they, have, they have a common theme between them. It's about bringing the community together and going beyond just the school and saying, how can we all serve students? And how can we serve the community? How can we serve their families together? It's not just enough to educate them; it has to be a community thing. This isolation is the Achilles' heels of our our work with English learners.
1: That's so true, and we saw that in COVID. So the so the the, the, the schools that had relationships with their families had a had a better chance of reconnecting with the families, staying in touch, getting the kids eventually back to school. And if the schools didn't have a relationship. That didn't mean they couldn't put it together, but it took a lot more work because they had to figure out how do we get in touch with them? What are our tools? How do we reach them? What if their contact information has changed? That's another thing I'll say that one one piece of advice that we have heard regularly is it's so important for schools to keep contact information updated and to make it easy for families to understand how that is done and why. And that can be, I mean, obviously COVID is example number one where the school all of a sudden shut down and schools needed to be contact um, families. This comes up in terms of immigration to, um, proceedings. You know, there are stories where there is a perhaps an immigration raid in a community, and the school cannot find caregivers for children at the end of the day. And that was something that someone shared with us, whose town had been through a major immigration raid, and it was real. Um, it can make the difference between whether the child goes off to foster care or child protective services or goes home with someone they know. That's something that we can at least um, remind schools, keep this updated and help your families figure out how to keep it updated. And if your system is an English-only website that they're supposed to access, maybe you need to think about whether there's another way to make it easier for your multilingual families to do that because they really could be impacted by that. So all these things do end up intersecting for schools in their work and... um, often need to be addressed even before the learning is really getting underway.
0: That's why Color Writing Colorado is a great source. It's a reminder of things that work for English learners. So keep on reminding mm. us because we sometimes Thank forget. You. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the dual language side. Can you say some resources about dual language instruction?
1: Um, and I, I should have mentioned up top that our website is bilingual itself. It's in English and Spanish. and. Um, uh, we have resources, uh, a lot of resources for Spanish-speaking families, and we have um, a lot of information about dual language instruction. And one of the programs that we did, we did a video project with, uh, in partnership with the NEA, and we went to an elementary school in Arlington, Virginia, and we showed how their day works, how the kids are doing, you know, the morning in one language, um, and then they switch, and we actually film the switch. We see them walking in the hallway to their other classroom, and we see two lessons one in English, one in Spanish, it's different content, but it's the same learning objective. And they're they're talking about the same um, uh, topic in terms of what they're trying to get at, which has to do with uh, the, the level of questioning. And so we see this happening in English and Spanish. So they're getting this support, but not only do we see that, we see the meeting. I know this is very exciting. We see the meeting, the grade level meeting where that is all planned out And guess who's there? The principal is there. The coaches are there. The bilingual support staff are there. And then the English and Spanish teachers are there. So it's really a team team approach to saying, how are we collaborating? Because also with the language instruction, you have to be very intentional and efficient with your time and how you're using it. And so um, you see all this in, in, in place. It also is a school... That is so warm, so welcoming. And we walk in, there are beautiful artifacts from this, you know, the countries of the families. Um, there are flags hanging in the cafeteria. And I'm very happy to say the principal, Dr. Jessica Jessica Panful, won the Principal of the Year Award for Arlington last year. And she's just a tremendous leader.
0: You've kind of already touched on this, but you talked about the field the is highlighting the virtues of collaborating. And you were talking about that last lesson where, like, everyone is involved and collaborating. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. I've learned so much from Andrea Hunningsveld and Maria Dove, and I know you featured their work and and had them as guests as well. One thing that I've talked a lot about with them is grassroots collaboration, so that even if the formal structures are not in place and support is not in place, it is still, there are still things that individuals can do, even if the whole, um, you know, the whole building isn't necessarily operating this way. For example, we interviewed a, an itinerant teacher who was working between so many buildings. He just couldn't build relationships with all the teachers that he was um, collaborating with. So every year he sends a letter at the beginning of the school year, introducing himself and, um, explains what he does, how he can support, how he can work. It's such a simple step, but I think it's especially helpful for all of the, um, you know, really getting at this question of the role of the ESL specialist and what they know and what is their expertise. And um, so he puts that out there and it's been a great way. And I think that's a wonderful strategy to to think about doing saying, here I am, this is, this is introducing myself and here's how I can support you. Um, and I'm happy to answer your questions as well, number one. Number two, um, a, a colleague of ours, Katie Padilla, who's an ESL coach in Fairfax County, Virginia. Um, she likes to celebrate collaboration. So in staff meetings, she'll ask people to share examples of what's working. So not only does that kind of lift everybody up and show how this can help, it gives people ideas, it plants seeds, because now we have a really practical application of it. Another colleague of ours, Christina Robertson, one of our early uh, AFT Cadre members and still a contributor to the site, wrote a wonderful blog post in another <clears throat> for another website where she says that she kind of does troubleshooting. She asks people, what are your questions? What's an issue with a student you can't resolve? She kind of, rather than saying, here's what I know how to do, she says, you tell me what you need and let me see how I can help problem solve it with you. And then we talk a lot with Diane Sterfenner about the elevator speech. You know, how are, how are you talking about your work? Do people, how are you helping people understand? Because there is a huge gap. In terms of what people understand about the role of the ESOL teacher and what administrators, um, we work with Karen Woodson, who um, often gets questions from principals about what ESOL teachers do. And so she, she's someone who, when she was a principal, had a regular, standing meeting with her ESL specialist every week. That's how important it was to her to keep that communication strong. And so she shares a lot of information with other colleagues and leaders in the field about what are some things you should know about this. So I think all of these speak to helping people understand the role, taking very concrete steps to establish relationships. And again, there's a lot in there in terms of relationship building, building trust. How do you, how are we viewed as equals, as partners? Um, Where are we in the room? You know, you sort of get into the mechanics of co-teaching, but that can be tricky for, for ELL teachers. Um, And I will just say that we have worked in a couple of schools. I mean, most of the schools I've mentioned, I would say have very strong professional learning community cultures, if not sort of baked in kind of collaboration time. Even if that is a million miles away from your reality, you can still take small steps to find that one person maybe who's open to working with you, that one person who's having trouble with their language objectives, that one person who really wants a little bit of support but doesn't know where to start and then once it starts working here's where katie's idea comes in you share the ideas and then other people see and then eventually you go to the administrator and say this is something we've been doing it seems like it's helping can we have a little more co planning time can we think about maybe having a little more push in time and then um and then it comes together so i think we've really tried to focus on the role the professional responsibilities and how we can support that and how we can empower Um, teachers and I will just say that one of the amazing things about working for Polarine Colorado is that people feel such a deep appreciation and sense of gratitude because they think it is empowering and validating and affirming as you said in a profession that is often very isolated and so we've had people say things like I tried this idea no one was interested and then I brought one of your articles and they were ready to try it. We are pushing um, great information out there. And a lot of times our audience already knows. It's not necessarily new, sometimes it is, but they are then able to take it in that package and present it to an administrator, present it to a a colleague. And so we're sort of lifting up their role and making them more visible. And I think that's. Part of the reason why people feel such a deep affection for our site. Our, Giselle was at a conference and two teachers came up with tears in their eyes and they said, this, this project saved our jobs because we were not ELL teachers and we were transferred into ELL roles and we did not know anything about where to begin. And we found color in Colorado. We had a great article and someone tweeted, I feel seen. And um, I think it really um, speaks to this wealth of information and expertise that the Yale community has that is often not deeply understood in a way that really, you're really harnessing it as the resource that it is. And so that's that's a more nuanced part of the job that I've come to appreciate over time, but I think it really is is part of the power of the project and why people feel so deeply appreciative. And, and I know you interviewed Paula Marcus recently. Um, I was with Paula and when Cecil was in Toronto, and um, she was taking a group of us to a site visit of a school um, that was a large, large immigrant community in Toronto. And she said, I just have to stop and pick up a friend. We came in, and, and Paula was driving, so she couldn't really introduce And She said, oh, this is Lydia. She runs school in Colorado. And this woman was a teacher in Edmonton. And she said, what? You run Coloring, Colorado? We love Coloring, Colorado. And so we were in the backseat having this conversation you know, we know that people use our site in other countries. We know we have a lot of fans in Canada. Hello, Canadian friends! We know you're out there. Um, but sh- it was just one of those moments that was really special because, you know, it's, to me, it's just you know, it's what I'm doing every day. We're putting information out there, but it's just really exciting to meet people who are in the midst of it. And um, and that was really special to to get to have that connection. Thanks to Paula. So uh, yeah, it's it's really. It's, it's on so many levels, I think, that things are working
0: that way. Right. After the U.S., uh, the people who listen to the podcast the most are Canadians, and they are so kind and passionate and dedicated teachers. I've had the privilege to work both in the East Coast and the West Coast, and they are some of my favorite teachers to work with. When I have a, uh, an engagement, I'm like, yes, Canadian teachers! So. And they have such a diverse student population
1: in um, so many of same um questions and situations that that we're working through here so there's a lot and we have a lot of canadian resources they have some ontario put together some great things paula she was the director of esl services in toronto did amazing outreach work and so there's a lot we can learn from them as well i think um and it goes both ways
0: for sure you uh, let's talk about administrators which you've actually talked about several times um would you talk about What recommendations do you have for administrators who are supporting ELs and their teachers?
1: I was very fortunate many years ago, early on in this job, to interview one of our advisors named Dr. Cynthia Lundgren. What she said early on in our interview and kept coming back to was that administrators set the tone. And as I, you know, all of these schools I have described, when you walk in, you know the community is valued. You know the languages are represented and there's active engagement with this diverse community. Um, That's not to say it's not happening in other places if you don't get that feeling right away. But there is something about walking into a building where the principal is fully on board that it makes a really big difference. A lot of administrators are new to this population. In fact, the principal in Salina, Sue Stanley had not worked with um, this particular community where she is a leader. Um, and she said, there's a big learning curve. And I I really, I made mistakes and I had to sort of approach this with a lot of humility, but I had wonderful people who we all wanted the same thing. We all wanted kids and families to succeed. So um, I think it's, you know, humility and asking questions and really being ready to face what you don't know is a really important part of just saying, you're not, you don't have to have all the answers. and um, One of one of Susan LaFon's favorite uh, recommendations is that when the ELL teachers go to the like if there's an ELL training, you don't just want to send the ELL teacher. They probably know the information. Send them with a team, ideally that includes an administrator, because then you can really start those conversations. Um, So I think knowing, uh, you know, just being ready to admit what you don't know, knowing that your actions, your tone, your what you are prioritizing is seen and is felt and is heard by the staff, by the families, and that you can really make a difference. I think that's one really critical um, piece. And then being willing to support the collaboration and the outreach and and appreciate the work that's happening behind the scenes is another. Um, because in the end, it's you know there's there're resource decisions to be made, there's staffing, there's scheduling, all those things. But the more informed you are about what's happening, the better those situations you can will be. So. For example, just um, a few of the other folks that we've worked with, Nathaniel Provencio, We um, interviewed him when he won the Washington Post Principal of the Year Award a couple of years ago, and he, I said, "What, you know, what's your favorite professional development that you've attended?" And I thought he would mention a great conference or you know something he went to, but he actually talked about shadowing a student, and he had a timer, he had a stopwatch, and every he 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 started it every time the student was involved, and in really. Meaningful instruction. And this was a student who was in and out of a lot of classes, had a lot of transitions, and at the end of the day, he had clocked about 15 minutes of instruction total. And he said, This is malpractice. This is unconscionable. So their school, partly out of that experience, but partly from some of the other things that they were dealing with, came up with a new literacy model where the literacy team pushed in to each classroom. They did the literacy block and then they moved and the kids didn't move. Reading uh, Reading performance improved. Gifted referrals improved. Behavior improved. Behavior referrals decreased. Special education referrals decreased. When you look at a student's schedule from the student's point of view, and you see, and especially for ELs, and particularly if ELs need interventions or services in addition to everything else, they may be in and out of the class multiple times in a day and they may be missing long stretches of core content. So I think he really made that a focus, which I thought was so interesting and valuable. Um, And then sort of going back to the social emotional piece, um, we had the privilege to interview uh, a principal named Victor Tam. He works in a school um, that uh, supports newcomer students from China in San Francisco. So he's working in a very unique context in terms of um, families who have recently immigrated. And he um, he actually talked about his own experiences. We connected uh, around all of the bullying and the AAPI community. So he talked about what school leaders can do, how, again, you need to be out in front. You need to know this is impacting your community and you need to know they're, that they're likely Worried about it, and even if that's not being brought to your attention, that doesn't mean it's not a concern. And then he went on to talk about his own experiences being bullied as a young Chinese immigrant in a school in a community where there were very few, um, if any, families like his um, when he was growing up here as a new immigrant. So he was very vulnerable and sharing that. But I think it just um, he felt at the moment called for it and, and to say, you know, we, this is a place where we school leaders have a commitment to create these um, safe and welcoming communities for all of our students and to know that there are a lot of different issues and a lot of different communities are bringing of those different issues, but you need to be ready to engage. Um, and then we interviewed another wonderful leader named Dr. Jennifer Love, um, who's in the Prince George's uh, School District in Maryland, and she is the director of language access um, for, the, for the district. She is making sure that people have access to um, interpretation services, translation, and she is her standards are high. And <laughs> you and, and she knows the laws inside and out. And so to see what that looks like in a school and a district where they're taking it really seriously and they've staffed it and they've put resources to it, and you have multilingual staff across the district that was really inspiring too because it it shows what it can look like it doesn't look like that in a lot of places but she is someone who's very specific about this is an okay case this is not and how do we do this better um so we had a wonderful conversation and um I, I learned so much from her in that area and um, her own journey in becoming an ELL educator. So um, all of these different perspectives and different issues, you know, they're coming in at different places, but it's really um, a privilege to be able to bring these stories because I think as you said, you're lifting up the examples, you're showing what this can look like, and then hopefully you're giving individuals ideas of little steps that they can take even if, you know, their context is not there, but maybe it could be one day, and often it is the work of individuals who um, go you know, one step at a time that makes the change. So that's what we're trying to do.
0: I always say that administrators are my co-teachers, even if they're not in the room, because they set the tone, like you said, and then they create the staffing for that. And then they create the mm-hmm. systems that support the work that we do mm-hmm. with our English learners. So they are our partners. Yes. Let's talk about another partner, our families, students' families.
1: Well, this is a great chance to highlight three wonderful new resources we've done with AFT. And I will say we were so lucky to have your input in that as well. Um, The first one was uh, an animated video available in eight languages. One of those was Vietnamese, and we really appreciate you reviewing them and and giving us good feedback early on. Um, So those have voiceovers and text on screen in these eight different languages that just talk about the different ways that families can play a role in supporting language and literacy. There is a set of uh, related tip sheets that has a lot of that information available in 16 languages. It's a great outreach tool, and we wrote a guide to support what the outreach around that video, you know, those videos could look like. We did a second series that features PSAs um, in English and Spanish around literacy, and those are really geared toward families at all literacy levels. So we really wanted to, you know, help families feel like everybody can be a part of this journey, no matter what you're on. Experiences with with literacy and with education. Um, those are presented by a wonderful um, early literacy teacher in the Bay Area, and um, so the, there are six of those, and they're presented in English and Spanish. And our third one is also featuring a, an educator in the bilingual in the Bay Area named Henry Salas, and he is trilingual. He speaks English, Spanish, and MUM, which is a an indigenous language uh, from Guatemala. We really wanted to highlight the indigenous communities here from Latin America which so often schools assume they are Spanish speakers because they're coming from Latin America. Um, but Spanish may be a second language or maybe even a third language um, and English is a third or a fourth language and so there may be a lot of stigma in their home country and so they do not sort of willingly share that they are indigenous. One school we worked with um, in Baltimore called Wolf Street academy had um, mixed Texan speakers and they didn't know. They all of a sudden they saw a spike of Spanish speaking students in um, special education and they didn't know why. And when they dug into it, it turned out these students were actually um, mixed Texan speakers and Spanish was the second language. So they had sort of thought they were doing the right thing by assessing them in Spanish, but it turns out that was also their second language. Um, So Henry shares a lot about his story in the series that we did. We also interviewed him and really highlighting um you know again you have to build trust you have to be ready to kind of meet families where they're at give them the opportunity to share their culture and um be maybe may ready to go slowly if that's what they need but also um, know that they're bringing um so much to the table and so you just have to create the conditions so that they feel like they're welcome and they're ready um to share that. So that those are three great projects. Uh, uh, thanks to our wonderful partnership with the AFT that we've been able to do. And, and each of those series has an outreach guide. Um, and so that we hope that that will give people ideas about how to use them.
0: I remember when you asked me to review the Vietnamese video. I, was, I almost got teary-eyed at the end of it because it was the voice was so warm, but the message was exactly everything we, that we've learned from the research about supporting students' heritage language. And I wish that someone would have said, like, my mom, like, when I was a kid, really wanted to help me in school, but she didn't know English. So she was like, just do your best, just follow instructions, I can't help you but I think if she had this video and the teachers had this video, the teacher could have like opened the laptop and push play and let her watch this very quick three minute video. And she, she would then feel part, wholly involved in my education as a young kid. So um, I, I just missed it as an adult, but man, there's gonna be generations of uh, Vietnamese te- uh, families that are gonna appreciate what you've done. Thank you for sharing that and it's funny that
1: you mentioned the voice of of the speaker because we did review a lot of different voices for all of these and we really wanted to get that warmth um, and and that sort of family feeling so I'm glad that that came through on the video that you watched.
0: How does the team so small be so nimble? I I, I just the the examples that you gave really show oh Colorado, Colorado has their pulse on the education environment of America and saying, oh, okay, this is what's happening, this is what's coming up. We got you. I remember like you have a series of COVID articles as well. I'm just so impressed.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Well I, I do think the AFT Yellow Cadre, they you know, they have been there all along. Um and those voices really inform what we do and we um um we are able to really harness a phenomenal network. And Don, your part of that network. I mean, I pulled you in on that project and said, okay, I need I need a Vietnamese speaker. <gasps> I should write time, you know. So it, it, it's it's a really um, you know, it is a it is a group effort. And I'll just quickly say with COVID, we sent out a survey to our audience because we knew there was no playbook. We got that, and then you know, based on that, we were able to start putting things together and we had an article up by the end of March 2020. Um, because people wrote back, they wanted to share their experiences, like. Sometimes no one else was asking them about what their experiences were. Colorin Colorado comes along with a survey and says, We want to hear from you. Tell us what's going on. And so then they can they can put it together.
0: I'm continued to be impressed by the things that are keep on coming. What what's coming up for coloring Colorado.org? So what is coming up?
1: Uh, we have, as I mentioned, um, a new teacher evaluation project. A long time ago, AFT had done a project where they were coming, where they were looking at the evaluation of teachers and English learners. And I sat in on some of those meetings early on and the emotion of the teachers describing what it was like to be evaluated by someone who did not know your practice, who did not know your field. It was a very emotional meeting and that always stayed with me. And so we were sort of thinking about different project ideas. And um Syracuse, New York has a very unique peer evaluator program where a number of the content areas have a, an evaluator who is a specialist in that area. The English is a new language, ENL bilingual evaluator. Um, in Syracuse is Aureli Skrmerhorn. And I said, wait a minute, this is a perfect opportunity to capture what she is doing because they're really trying to change the conversation about evaluation to turn it into something that is related to um, professional growth and support. Uh, we filmed a full evaluation cycle. So we have the teacher, Mr. Jesus Ortiz, who um, people sort of say he's, he's he's one of the mayors of the town because whenever you go anywhere with him, everybody knows him, all the family knows him. He started as a, as a teacher's aide and worked, moved up to become a teacher in this community. And um, and was courageous and gracious to go through this whole process on camera. Um, so we see him have a pre-meeting where they sit down and talk about what the lesson is going to be and what are some of the things she's looking for. We see him then teach the lesson where she is taking her notes. And then we see the conversation that happens after and so we get that whole cycle. And I think particularly for teachers of English learners, it's really interesting because he's able to talk about the students' language levels, the languages they speak, how he's scaffolding, what he's doing. It's actually a dual language classroom although that we focus on the instruction in English. And then she's able to show how she is, you know, where are the points where she has questions? What maybe didn't quite make sense? Is, is there a reason for this happened this way? Um, what are some of the things that she saw that were strengthened them? What are the resources? And then that's when he brings up this question about what are language objectives? I really, really, I'm trying to get my head around this. And can you give me more information? A project that we are in the process of editing and are going to get out. We also are going, um, to have a Spanish language version of a wonderful resource that's on reading rockets. It's called reading one one for families. And it's a really nice guide of all the things that you can be doing, parents can be doing at different grade levels from basically from pre-K through uh, second grade, I think, um, in the early literacy realm. And it's got a lot of nice, really fun strategies and ideas around things like vocabulary and letter recognition. And and so we're going to translate that into Spanish. We're going to have a new um, database of our books. We have a lot of wonderful multicultural diverse books, and um, you're going to be able to search by language, by age, by Topic by communities. We're going to have a new ELL strategy library as well um, coming up, and then we also are working on building some professional development resources because we know a lot of people pull our resources into courses, and so we want to kind of help streamline that a little bit. So that's kind of our, you know, looking uh, ahead to the next year. There are a lot of big projects. There's a lot of content we're going to be working on, but um, I think it's it's all trying to respond to what we've heard and the needs that we've heard. yeah, we're excited
0: about all those oh my things. Goodness. Oh my goodness, how does, like, forget working, if you're a high-functioning person, forget going to Amazon and Google, come work at Color in Colorado, because those people <laughs> are highly effective and efficient with their time, with all these mm-hmm. projects, wow. Lydia, let's finish the podcast with um, giving us a big takeaway from all of your years of experience working with them as an organization.
1: I think it would be to think outside the box. I think it's to say that um, if you're doing something well with English learners and with multilingual learners, it's probably going to look different. I think that's especially true with family engagement. You know, we've talked to people who have group parent-teacher conferences, very efficient because you only have to give the information one time instead of repeating it 30 times. But then you pull out people for a little side conversations on very specific things that they need to talk about. We had the privilege to talk with um, Juliana Otobe. Uh, she had written an article for us about special education in English language learners. Was then named Nevada Teacher of the Year when we interviewed her during COVID. And then after that interview, she was named the National Teacher of the Year. She herself is an immigrant for Colombia. It's an amazing story. She has been a teacher in different schools, but she has a lot of experience at working with students in Las Vegas and a lot of the families work on the strip and they work in the service industry. And that is not a group of families that is on a sort of typical school schedule system. Not only that, a lot of times in the jobs, they can't open, they can't respond to texts, they can't receive phone calls. If you are measuring their engagement by whether or not they come to XYZ meeting at ABC time, whether or not they have returned this phone call, whether or not they have come to this meeting, um, that is just a non-starter. And these are families who are here to provide a better life for their children. So it's not a question of their intent or their dedication. So she talks about in this, in this clip using WhatsApp in different ways and saying like, let's meet the families where they are. And so I think that's a really powerful example to say, it's going to look different um, and you mentioned Larry Falazzo, he has a great book and his is a great um, book around building engagement with families. And he says, we really need to push back from involvement to engagement. He sort of helps make that shift saying, this is not the school saying, here's what you need to do and here's what you need to be. And he shares this beautiful story about um, families, um, Hmong and Cambodian families that the school was working with and they decided to pull together to do a garden. So they said, well, let's have a meeting about the garden. And very few people came and they said, well, they must not be interested in the garden, but okay, well, it's already scheduled. Go ahead and do it anyway. Well, more than eighty people came on gardening day and they had tools. And these were people who had generations of experience and working in the land. And they said, we don't do meetings, we do gardens. So how often are we starting with, has this family come to the meeting? as our as our first kind of criteria of whether or not they are quote unquote engaged or involved. So I think um I think it really is knowing that it is going to look different in every place and knowing that every school, if it's working, is going to look different than the school next to it because you're actually starting with the families who are in front of you. You're starting with the students who are in front of you. And then you're also you're also sort of Bringing some empathy for your colleagues and the administrators who may be new to this and maybe not quite ready to admit what they don't know yet, or maybe very hesitant about doing something new and just saying, We know this is going to look different. It feels different. It may be a little intimidating. It may be a little scary. You may not be there. But we know that when we have this two way street and we are ready to think creatively, it, it, um, it helps, and 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 I I'll just close by saying that I spoke to some teachers at one point, and a teacher raised her hand. She said, "You know, I've had some ideas about ELL family engagement, but they're kind of different. And I I think what I'm hearing you say is that I should think outside the box. And it's like she was looking for permission. And so I think our job is in part to give permission to people to say it's going to be different, and that's okay. And what it looks like when it works is going to feel different too. But when it works. You know, the sky's the limit. This is, this is such a rich community. We, you know, we don't talk a lot, a lot about their strengths and their talents, but they have so much to offer. And so if you can tap into that, if you can tap into what the students have and what they can bring to your community, you have a whole new set of resources that you weren't tapping into previously. So it's really worth it. it it's hard. You have to be vulnerable. You have to take a risk. But sometimes you just need one teacher who says, you know, we did this differently and it worked. And I think you guys should try or at least think about trying. And I'm here to help you if you want to. So I know that's long. a long answer is a big takeaway, but I do think that being ready to um, just, your starting place is not status quo. It's how is this going to look different? We're just gonna assume that it's going to look different The question is how. And then from there, you know, we can figure out what the particulars are, what what we need. So it's really been a privilege to hear so many of those stories, meet so many schools that are doing a great job, and find out how individuals have made a difference, because they really do. And I see it every day. And I'm so lucky to be able to bring those stories to other people, which I hope provide comfort and inspiration and a little bit of a bright light when things are not so bright um so that's that would be my big takeaway
0: well lydia this was a podcast worth listening to twice right away when this podcast is has finished i recommend that p- teachers go back and listen to it again because you will be inspired but also take such tangible tips you said early in the podcast that we aren't really in teachers classroom that i would say just based upon this conversation you definitely are our partner. Every time someone reads your articles, use your resources, you are with them, with their students, and with their colleagues and their families. So Lydia, and to all of your colleagues at Color Colorado, continue to shine your light for us.
1: Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you so for bringing so many great resources out to your
0: audience. I know we appreciate it. We all appreciate it. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field, I've applied them to my classes, I kept the things at work, and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. Now, onto our recap. Lydia Bryset has been kind enough to create a resource page featuring everything we talked about, so it's easy for you to find it too. That page includes some things we didn't have a chance to talk about, like Cororín Colorado's video project on community schools, an in-depth article about how the substitute teacher shortage impacts ELLs and the ELL teachers and a new free web app called Colorín on the go which features more than a hundred strategies in a format that is easy to share. You're welcome to share these resources with colleagues and families and we know you'll find some new favorites in this collection. I know that as long as I teach in this field I will turn to Colorín Colorado as a lighthouse in our field. Thank you, Colorín Colorado, and thank you, Lydia Bryset, for brightening the way. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play traffic light teaching. Tweeted me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.